As we move from gold coins to central bank-issued money, and now privately-issued money, one of the critical questions is, how in this world are we supposed to value this asset? How does it have value? This podcast series is called Economic Design. In this series, we'll be talking about how to design a virtual economy, chat with various designers, and run through different case studies. More generally, we'll be talking about the economic design of digital systems. They can be blockchain-based, they can be frequent flyer points based, or they can be just video games. So let's get started. In this episode, we will uncover the fundamentals of how money accrues value. There are plenty of research and papers talking about the justification of value. From Bretton Woods to equation of exchange explanations, this episode will take a more fundamental view of money. This means going back in time to history. After all, economics design is about understanding the basic fundamentals of an economy so we can build upon them. In this episode, we will cover three things. One, how is money created? Not just how money is valued, but how money is created in the world today. We will discuss the creation of money under various philosophical views of money. This is a divide between monetary economists today. But for some reason, we don't talk about this fundamental difference in philosophy. Instead, we continue on the endless debates of modern monetary theory and the likes. Two, how money is legitimized and accrues value. And three, application to cryptocurrency using Bitcoin as an example. One, evolution of money. I'm sure you've already heard a lot about the history of money and how money has evolved. So you can skip this part if you want to. But if you don't want to, and for those who are new to the whole idea of money, you can stay for a little while just to understand the evolution of money. We started off with barter trade a long, long time ago. Sure, there are no anthropological findings or study to prove that barter trade actually existed. It's more a gift kind of economy where I gift you something and you gift me something. But let's understand the idea of barter trade and where the problem lies. The problem in butter trade lies in the double coincidence of wants. That means I want your clay pot at the same time where you want my wooden spoon, and we value it the same way. So money comes in to resolve that. Money comes in as a medium of exchange so that we can exchange that. That's the main function. We can exchange two different items with money. Then around 6000 to 9000 BC, we have money as assets. This has evolved because we have moved to an agrarian society. We use livestock and plant stock to trade with each other. And then about 3000 BC, we started commodity money. We used precious metals as money. So things like gold coins are minted and money comes from the fact that it is gold. So gold gave money or gold gave that coin its value. And then about 1000 AD, we have government issued money. So gold coins or bags of barleys are too heavy to carry around to do your shopping, to do your trade. So paper money was introduced in the Song Dynasty in China. The government saw this as an opportunity to manage the economy with debt and took over the issuing of credit. This was arguably the first central bank. It has the monopoly of issuing money or issuing credit. And it was the first, monop- or first institution to trade and manage money. And in the 1990s, we have digital representation of money. With the advancement of technology, we create money in an electronic form. Central banks distribute money to banks so that citizens like you and me get to withdraw and use them. There is also privately issued money instead of central bank. They can be digital money, esports money, or cryptocurrencies. As our economy expanded, we begin to work with credit. Credit was introduced a long, long time ago. It was even inscripted in the Code of Hammurabi. 
With credit, there wasn't enough precious metals in the world to maintain a monetary system. In today's economy, money is created where parties can enter into a forward contract. In simple terms, this could be between you and your credit card company. Money is created when you use the credit card to make payments now. You repay the credit at the end of the month. So money is temporarily created in this process. In a macro view, this is the central bank purchasing debts to create money, like we see today through treasury bonds. In this way, money also acts as a balance sheet operation to account for differences. Money now becomes a representation of value. A penny is one cent on base value, but if you evaluate from the copper and materials used to make that penny, the penny is worth 1.5 cents in 2016. That's a 50% increase in value. That statement just summarizes the differences in philosophical views. Metalist money is where the thing has value on its own, and that is the value of the copper in the coin, which is 1.5 cents. Chartalist money is where the thing represents value, so that's the face value of the penny, 1 cent. That means if the penny is chipped, the metalist view is lowered depending on the weight, but the chartalist face value is still the same, 1 cent. The main change in these two views comes from the function of money. In the metalist view, money is developed as a medium of exchange to eliminate barriers of butter trade. Money is independent on whatever else is going on. The intrinsic value of the commodity gives value to money, which is gold coins. In chartalism, money is issued by the state that guarantees the value. It becomes a unit of account to balance between debt and credit amongst people and firms. It is also a means of payment to account for these debts. Unit of account and means of payments is slightly different. Keynes' view of money of account is a description of how money is denominated. Money, then, is the thing that answers to this description. So money can be any object used to report the balances of trade interaction. It could be USD, UR, even BTC. In metalist money, the value is derived from precious metal content. Or in the gold-backed USD days, National bank notes redeemable in that commodity is also metalist money, which is this bank note where you can redeem gold using the bank note. This is no different from other commodities. Money is irrelevant to real economic analysis since it's neutral and only acts as a medium of exchange. The value of metalist money is independent of the medium used to represent it. It might say one cent on the penny, but the value of the coin is 1.5 cents based on the precious metal content. In pure metalist view, money is an asset to the holder and a liability to no one. So it is not used in any balance sheet operation, which is why it does not have two other functions that chartalist money has. In this system, buyers and sellers establish the medium of exchange, not the sovereign state. On the other hand, chartalist money is based on liabilities to each other. Money is created by the state, which is the central bank. Central bank has monopoly in money creation and accepts that money in payment of taxes or liabilities, like that. Money is created based on credit. The central bank has a stamp to represent this credit. This money is independent of the medium used to represent it. A $1 bill costs 7.7 .7 cents to make, but the value of the note is $1, which is what the face value represents. The value of chartalism money comes from the usefulness and acceptance in settling taxes or liabilities with the state. The state issues money with a legal significance, they call it legal tender. Essentially, money is just an IOU. The state issues money 
by spending it on goods available to the public, like government bonds. The state money is an asset to people who have the bonds. It is a liability to the state itself. Comparing it with the metalist's money, where money is an asset to the holder and liability to none, Chartalist money is where there is an account balance of assets versus liabilities. The value of chartalism money is from the state. The credit is backed by government and regulation. It's also worthy to note that monetary systems in the world today or in today's economy is based on charter money. Of course, these are just extreme ends. Government only exists to validate banknotes versus government spending endless money under MMT. There exists a lot of policies and theories in between. Does this mean that a society can only choose one of this system? Not so true. Where can we see these two systems interacting? Let's go back to ancient times. We have Kingdom Lizi and Kingdom Lui. For money within each kingdom, the king will act like a central bank and create their own currency, Lizi dollars and Lui dollars. The currency is backed by the trust of the king. The currency is recognized by the citizens of the kingdom. After all, the king backs the value of the money. Now, what happens when Kingdom Lizzie wants to trade with Kingdom Louis? Can Kingdom Lizzie pay the trade in Lizzie dollars? Mm, maybe not so much because Kingdom Louis doesn't recognize Lizzie dollars because Lizzie doesn't rule that kingdom. Instead, they trade in gold, which is a commodity that has value on its own. Both kingdoms recognize that value. Do you know which is metalist money and which is chartalist money? Metalist money is the gold where both countries used to trade with each other. Chartalist money is Lizzie dollars and Louis dollars that's used within the ecosystem and backed by the trust of the king. We have a similar model in the IMF today. The metalist money is SDR, special drawing rights. We covered a little bit of that during our session on Facebook Libra. Only countries have access to them and can trade with each other using SDR. Within each country, however, they have their own currency issued by the central bank like EUR, RMB, JPY. Now that you've heard the history and fundamentals of money, let's go through the three-step process to legitimize money. What is legitimized money? That is where money has a stamp by the central bank as legal tender. Here we're not talking about the what, we're talking about the how. How do we legitimize money? Step 1. Taxes. The first step to legitimize money is by allowing tax payments with that money. We see this in a country-based it may, you may work in Singapore and receive your salary in Singapore dollars. But as an American citizen, you have to pay your American taxes and you pay them in USD. Think about how this is applicable in digital-based economy and we'll come back to it later. Step 2. Social and legal contracts. Having the state to accept this money is not enough. There needs to be social contracts between users to accept this money. For example, if we both live in Argentina, we can choose to trade in Argentinian peso. But we are unsure about the stability of the peso, so we decide to trade in USD instead. The Argentinian central bank cannot control that. As long as you pay taxes in the local currency, they cannot control whatever is going on in between. One way to increase trade in the currency is to increase trust and confidence in the currency. It can also benefit from network effects, where everyone else is accepting that currency. USD benefits from such network events. Cambodia accepts USD more readily than Argentinian pesos. Last step, step 3. Credit. Credit is created with four contracts. In this process, money is created when both parties agree to hold on to this liability. 
the Fed injected $2.3 trillion into the US economy. This didn't just come out of thin air. The Fed purchased a lot of corporate and government debt. Based on that debt, they issued money. They're basically taking future money to spend it today. The Fed has the power to transform that future money for us to use today. At the end of the day, money is legitimized when it becomes the highest degree of acceptance. You can map it out as a hierarchy of money. The top value, highest acceptance, is central bank fiat money. All the way down to the lowest, it could be individual money, like Lisa money. It's money that I created. God knows how much that's going to work. Now let's turn the application to cryptocurrencies. Note that I use cryptocurrencies and not digital assets or digital or crypto assets. Digital assets and crypto assets can have different functions like utility, security, or other functions. I'm focusing solely on the function of a currency. Let's start with the value of cryptocurrency with a three-step process to legitimize it. Instead of giving you a general view, I'm going to use BTC as an example in this section. Remember the two views of money, Metalist view and Chartalist view. Metalist view is where money is independent of everything else and has value from the resources used to create the asset. Bitcoin is a digital asset that requires miners to mine the asset. It requires two inputs, electricity and hardware, like a GPU or ASIC. These are not free, and they come at a cost. Haynes in 2015 wrote a paper to estimate that a Bitcoin mining cost in 2015 is about $250, and it's very close to the price at that time, which is about $255 to $265. If you think about it, BTC is a way for us to store electricity of today so that we can use it in the future. BTC is going to be a very important resource in the future as we move towards digitalization. BTC is a way for us to capture the unused electricity of today into a token so that it can be used in the future. Instead of central bank using tomorrow's debt to create money today, Bitcoin is using today's electricity to create money for tomorrow. So, BTC metalist value comes from the value of resources used to accrue BTC. Please comment on this analogy if you think it's flawed. A charterless view is where value is derived from the social debt obligations in the form of tax payments using that money. A simpler question is, what are social debt obligations paid in the Bitcoin economy? That will be transaction fees payable to the miners when you validate your transactions. A harder question is, Chartalist money talks about the notion of liabilities. What are these liabilities in the Bitcoin economy? There are no explicit liabilities like the central bank in repo market operations. However, there is an implicit liability when it comes to mining Bitcoins. You need to pay for electricity and invest in mining hardware. That's not free. Since BTC is not centralized, thus it is not backed by any government or regulation, what happens to it post-mining? In the current mining state, it's possible to value it from the resources generated. Post-mining, we will move to a charterless view. And you see, this is the genius of the mechanism design in the Bitcoin network. Bitcoin network, or Bitcoin, is now reliant on transaction fees instead of block rewards. This strengthens the taxes payable definition in charterless money and derives its value from social debt obligation. So how can we legitimize Bitcoin or a cryptocurrency? Step 1. Taxes. You probably guessed it by now. Taxes in a country-based economy is transaction fees in a cryptocurrency-based economy. Instead of paying VAT on your sandwich, you pay a transaction fee to validate that sandwich purchase. It's just taxes in a different form. To sidetrack a little, 
This is why allocation of transaction fees is so important and is an element in the economic design framework because it takes on the similar role of fiscal policy by the government. Step 2. Social and legal contracts. There is no legal contracts in Bitcoin network, but there are social contracts between users who are willing to receive BTC as payment. I know a lot of people who receive their fees and salaries in Bitcoin. In other words, this is part of the network effects that we keep talking about every other week. There is only so much that the central bank can do to govern and mandate the use of USD, that is to pay taxes in USD. In the same way, there's only so much the Bitcoin network can do to govern the users of BTC, which is to pay your transaction fees in Bitcoin when you use the network. The ecosystem around it has to emerge in social contracts to accept and transact in BTC. As more people are willing to accept Bitcoins, more people are willing to pay in Bitcoins and that encourages the network effects of the currency. And lastly, step 3. Credit. Credit is created with forward contracts. Forward contracts are similar to futures contracts. We have Bitcoin futures established in December 2017 by CBOE and PME. According to Keynes, account of money comes from the existence of debts, which are contracts for deferred payment. Money represents a debt relationship or promise to pay between parties. With physically settled Bitcoin futures contracts, the investor and the miner enters into an agreement to pay X dollars for Y amount of BTCs minted. Do note that Step 2, social and legal contracts, is talking more about instant settlement. So if I go to Starbucks or if I go to a cafe and I want to buy coffee, we're talking about instant settlement. Settlement within, you know, a 10 minutes time frame. Step 3 is a credit system, which is deferred payment. So if I go to my coffee place and get coffee every single day in the morning, then I can do a credit payment or a deferred payment in Bitcoin at the end of the month based on the amount of coffee that I consume. So what are some examples? From 2009 to 2020, there is a boom in infrastructure to allow Step 3, which is credit, to flourish. So for example, we have WBTC, which is Bitcoin, and P tokens. These are ERC20 tokens, so that you can now use Bitcoins to transact or interact with Ethereum-based DeFi platforms. So that means you can work with Maker, you can work with Uniswap, you can work with Zilliqa, you can work with a lot of other assets and platforms that accept ERC20 tokens based on Bitcoins. Or you have a borrow and lending platform like Atomic Loans, where you lock up Bitcoins in an escrow and you can borrow DAI and USDC. Thirdly, you have things that resolve liquidity issues, which is very important in credit markets. Rent Protocol provides access to inter-blockchain liquidity in debts. You also have fiat on-ramp because that's one of the, the best way to reach mass adoption. So you have various fiat on-ramps like MoonPay and Carbon Fiber to allow BTC as payments and then it would change it to fiat at the back end so that we can allow for mass adoption. And lastly, you have solutions like Lightning Network to enable instant payment instead of a 10-minute block validation time period. Moving forward, we are likely to see three types of currency systems emerging or even more down the road. The first one is public money by central bank, which is the government. So we see this as CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. We continue on with the current currency system, just digitizing it. Second is private money by companies. So for example, Libra. Facebook Libra. We had two episodes on Facebook Libra. One is talking about Facebook Libra and second talking about the possible market failures. And that's a very interesting thing to also consider when we are looking at private money by companies because there's a conflict in interest. 
And that will be one of the biggest potential market failure that will exist moving forward. So knowing that, what can we do? What are the mechanisms in place to reconcile that conflict of interest? And lastly, you have private money by machines like Bitcoin's code, where everything or the monetary policy or the mechanisms are codified into the system and it cannot be changed. Of course, there is no competition between these three systems or even more systems. They can all exist simultaneously. What we want to look at then is the hierarchy of money and the social implications of using that. Perhaps the future can continue on with currency divided by geographical location, which is the public money by central bank, or country divided by platform preferences, something like Facebook money, Amazon money, Tesla money. It's quite a dystopian kind of world where corporation rules the world, but that could be one way to go with this whole capitalism perspective. Or currency divided by ideologies, which is your private money by machines. So Bitcoin as an independent system with minimal governance, it could be a philosophy that people want and people go to so that they'll be transacting in that money. This is perhaps a high time to start thinking about a new world order in monetary systems because there are a lot of flaws in our current monetary systems. As we move on to a more digital-based currency or digital-based monetary system, we're talking about increasing efficiency in transactions. What are the different market failures and flaws in the system today? As we continue to evolve in the monetary system, we don't bring these failures and these flaws together in the new system. As always, if you have any comments, just put them in the YouTube comments or you can just reply to the Substack newsletter. Substack newsletter is a TLDR for those who are not watching the videos. If you want more information like this, you can sign up to the Token Economics Blueprint course. There's currently a discount going on. So sign up. Till then, I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.